1: For exclusive podcasts and more,
2: sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
3: Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the true crime review that digs into podcasts, pop culture, and this week, a double review. We'll examine HBO's take on the U.S. gymnastics abuse scandal at the heart of gold. Then we'll take a look at the new podcast series about New York's gun court, Slate Presents charged. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and America's podcast sweetheart, Kevin Flynn. I'm the podcast sweetheart. Yes. How many emails have you gotten this week?
4: Oh, I got so many great emails. Of support. Yeah. Man, I cried like so many times. Cried from joy. It was just, it was so wonderful. Thank you, everybody, for reaching out. And Everyone's I been it.
3: very nice to you. I know. Wishing you well on your cancer journey. Yeah.
4: Like so we've got, really, like I said, really great listeners and- You know, it's just been it's been an emotional week. So thanks, everybody. Everybody
3: loves you, Kevin. Nobody more than me.
4: Not as much as Toby loves me.
3: Remember that, though. Nobody more than me.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get any of those kind of texts, Rebecca.
3: (laughs) Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, resident rage walker and the host of her own Patreon podcast, Leave It to Bricker. Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, Rebecca. Yes, a new episode out this week. Very exciting. It is very exciting. And once again, it is 12 minutes packed full of content, locations, anything one could want from a bonus podcast on Patreon.
5: There's pretty much everything. There was even, <laughs> I don't know if you picked up on that, the oh, this is a spoiler, uh, and a tease, the old 80-year-old sailor's sex life was negatively impacted
3: by a cat. That's right. That's oh. right. I actually... Isn't am...
4: everybody's sex life negatively impacted by a
3: cat? I, I kind of enjoyed that the, the scary old lady that you ran into that Ken pulled you away from because he was afraid she was going to punch you. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good thing Grandpa's not here. We'd be behind bars. I'm like, whoo! wow. <laughs> well, speaking of our Patreon feed, also with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host and producer toby ball good evening toby good evening rebecca that was very sober very
6: temperate <laughs> and stayed <laughs> you know you know what it was what is that there's such a difference in the volume of my like when i speak into my microphone versus listening to you guys
3: <laughs> That as soon
6: as i started saying something it like blasted my ears and wow. uh i panicked
3: turn down your earphones toby
6: but then wow. i can't hear you
3: yeah well
6: maybe that's for the best <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be a tough God. one <laughs>
3: I, I just want to mention kevin and i had the pleasure this week of taping a these are their stories the law and order podcast yeah. with one dan Tabursky of running oh from God. cops and missing richard simmons and y2k fame yes
4: yeah we got to talk a little bit about the golden girls <laughs> as well.
3: oh my gosh and i will tell you that dan Tabursky also thinks that kevin is is super fucking old for referring to him as the Burl Ives of
7: podcasters.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Not Burl Ives himself, but that snowman that was the narrator for Frosty. Yes. You know, the stop motion.
3: Yes, we know.
6: You got to grow that beard out a little bit.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
4: But Dan was super nice to take the time, and thank God Toby didn't shit all over the podcast,
3: otherwise he would (laughs) have canceled
6: <laughs> wow! It was a warm, friendly uh, week on Twitter.
3: Yes, he seemed very pleased uh, that he finally got an unqualified thumbs up review from you, Toby. <laughs> As was I. I was pleased and relieved.
4: I try to
6: make people happy.
3: <laughs> I,
4: I also heard again from Bill Rankin. Yes, who it got <gasps> around the newsroom at the oh, uh, no. at the AGC that there was uh, an impression talking about trains. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I haven't heard it yet. But I hope I said how trains were helpful in the Industrial Revolution. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Bill Rankin, like his email to you, we're not going to read another show because it was to you, it was personal. Yeah was once again like one of the kindest, oh, nicest. Just... He is like a dream. Like I want him to adopt me. I want to be his kid. Yeah. I want him to be my brother. Like I want him to come to our Thanksgiving dinner. He's
4: Angela Lansbury of podcasting.
3: He's unbelievable. Why do you have to compare everybody with another person? It's it's a well-documented well documented fact that she's Lansbury. the nicest
4: person in, in Hollywood. But
3: he is he's the like literally the best. He is. Well I thought Hugh Jackman was the nicest person in show business. That's what I've always heard.
4: Well oh, he's probably very nice. Jay Leno And Angela Lansbury. Jay Leno was not
3: nice. That's wrong. That's inaccurate. Oh. Oh. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll check with her. Angela Lansbury. Yes. Mrs.
5: Potts. Yes, Also yes. Mrs. Fletcher. Yeah. Yes.
6: I can honestly say I've never watched more than 30 seconds of Angela Lansbury. I
3: kind of aspire to be like her. Angela Lansbury uh, is a theater legend. She's a theater legend. Patrick Hines would be so upset to hear you say that, Toby.
6: But would he be surprised?
3: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like Murder, She Wrote, Toby? Oh, my God. That was like my favorite show. I, don't I want that. think to,
5: I've
4: uh, even yes, watched a it was, second. I am oh so God. surprised that you liked Murder, She Wrote.
3: It's like my life. Yes, I know, Laura. You are Nancy Drew slash Murder She Wrote slash all of those old ladies with cats who solve mysteries. Kevin yeah. and I are heart to heart, mm-hmm. except not attractive and not rich. <laughs> Toby, and Toby's Columbo. Columbo. <laughs> oh, God. Toby's the White Shadow. <laughs> the white Shadow. Yeah.
6: Actually, when we were uh, when I was a senior for our uh, intramural basketball team in high school. We all got the orange Carver High uh, basketball jerseys.
3: And you are the white shadow, are you not, Toby Ball? Of course. (laughs) We made
4: that reference with Vea Pashas, who's from Australia, on our These Are the Stories, and she had no idea what the white shadow was. And it was actually like, yeah, you know, you're right. It's actually kind of a very old reference that doesn't really hold up well in 2019.
3: Kind of like Burr (laughs) Lives. podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say the same thing.
4: (laughs) But people still love Frosty the Snowman. I think today, if you did a TV show about a white basketball coach- white
3: savior, White yeah, yeah people
6: be like mm, yeah <laughs>
3: it's like welcome back mm. Cotter except worse
6: but it was a good show I mean they, it was a good show you know, I'm not gonna like start
3: defending the white shadow <laughs>
6: <laughs> well I don't think it needs to be defended I mean the concept is a little off but, uh, but some of the shows were, were uh were good it confronted some real issues yeah it was yeah. a
3: proto Friday Night lights yeah except about a white coach and the name of the show was. The, the white, white shadow. shadow, which yeah. is fucking and, and they, weird, and they had
6: an Italian guy named Salami. <laughs>
3: oh <my laughs> I remember <God>. that.
4: <laughs> I've never
5: seen this show,
4: and there were plenty of scenes where, like, the whole team was just in the shower, <laughs> soaping Singing. up, talking to each other.
6: Well, they were they would sing like '50s doo-wop songs.
4: Yeah, <laughs> it was great. And then they would say, "This was like the extent of like dirty things that they'd say about girls." Like, and, and they'd say, "Hey, man, did you know that Naomi
6: spelled backward is." I moan. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I was honest to God. That was the scene from that.
6: I thought they had one where there was a girl who got pregnant or no said she was pregnant. And then they all had to kind of like back down from their like boasts of sleeping with her. Mm. And then it turned out she wasn't pregnant, but she just wanted to like get everybody to stop. Like acting like she was a slut. Oh, so. that settled so many problems. <laughs> that was. <laughs>
4: that
3: solved me too. Yeah. Back then in The White Shadow. <laughs> good, wow. good memory, Toby. Wow. Trip down TV, memory. And Laura's like, I didn't fucking have TV in Vermont. And if I did, I would not have been watching The White Shadow.
5: I know. That wasn't on the two channels that I got. I've never heard of it.
4: Hi. Does this basketball team need a coach? <laughs> <laughs>
6: Bill Rankin is the white shadow. He's the white shadow? White shadow, 2019.
4: <laughs> you did All right, pass the ball. <laughs> We're gonna post up. <laughs> salami, salami. We're gonna do a pick and roll, salami. <laughs> oh, Which reminds me, I had salami for lunch on a toothpick. Oh, That's what you call an hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> We have those at cocktail
7: parties. Oh, no. We've got
4: way off track.
3: doesn't I matter why. It, this is, this is gold, true crime gold.
6: What oh, show is this again? God.
3: True crime gold. All right. Well, it's time for the obligatory plug section of our podcast that I'm sure is the thing that gets everyone to like fast forward past. Oh, no. But minutes. the talk
4: about the white shadow was so riveting. <laughs> right.
6: <laughs>
3: obligatory plugs.
6: You should do a timestamp about when we're done with that. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want to hear the Patreon plugs,
3: if you don't want to hear please fast-forward to shadow. 522. <laughs> oh, no. Alright, well, sign up for our Patreon, please. There's tons of good shit there, including this week's After Show podcast, on which we're going to talk about the latest episode of Game of Thrones, and Kevin is finally going to tell us why. He in fact vomited three times during his first oh, sexual encounter.
4: God, <laughs> that's the twenty five dollar level for that story.
3: Anyway, uh, so sign up for our Patreon right now. It's tons of good stuff: Laura's podcast, Toby's book club, our after show. It's really, really great. People love it. And speaking of Patreon, Kevin, we have a quick announcement to make. We did decide to give away a pair of tickets to PodX at conference we'll be attending in Nashville to one of our Patreon supporters, Kevin. Who will the four of us be seeing in Nashville on May thirty first to June second?
4: Uh, it's Jennifer LaCita of Yay! Covington, Kentucky.
3: Yay, Jennifer! She
4: and her sister are going to be joining us there, and hopefully, lots of others, uh, lots of other listeners will be there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're definitely looking forward to it. You know, we uh, gave the, the chance to get those tickets to the folks in our Patreon and asked them just you know click here, fill in your information. It was just it was a random giveaway, but I did ask people. Just for shits and giggles, not to make you win or not, but why should we give you the the stuff? And people oh. wrote good things.
3: Like what are they write?
4: I, there was a whole. I'm I won the white
3: shadow. I won the
4: white shadow. <laughs> <laughs> I just pulled a couple of them here. It's like you know, I'd love to meet you guys. Uh, and try to leave you with a favorable impression of a white southern male.
3: Oh. we have one. Bill Rankin.
4: That's right. <laughs> You're my number one favorite podcast. I can't wait to listen on Monday mornings. I'm a working mom trying to put myself first and do something I enjoy for the first real time. That's oh, a great one. Why don't you
3: send her a pair of tickets? Jeez, I
4: only have the one, Rebecca. Uh, your podcast is my go-to. Uh, let's see. Let me skip around. Maybe we could bring our dogs who have been cat of the week before. And could actually you could actually meet them? I rage walk every day. I listen to crime writers on to both warm up and cool down. Nice um let's see my husband is deployed to some unnamed country in the middle east my teenage daughter sort of sucks to be around and i need some fun she does and my last one here because i need to see toby's bulging biceps for myself nice check kevin's warby parker glasses to see if they are really as nice as he says see the madison reed results for becky with the good hair as well as check out her fancy beta brand dress pant yoga pants And confirm that Laura is a real person and not a character that's been made up of all of her fanciful, charming (laughs) AF stories. That's
3: right. (laughs) These are very good answers. Very good. That's a good one. I like it.
4: If you can't make it to Pod X, we have another appearance this summer that the four of us will be
7: at.
3: That's right. We just booked this. We're going to be in Chicago for the True Crime Podcast Festival. It is a very tight one-day festival, which I love. I love that they're just programming this whole thing. It's one day. July 13th at the Marriott downtown Chicago. The four of us will be recording, doing a live show there, and a meet and greet. Tickets and information at tcpf2019.com. Yeah. And you know what? Lisa, who's putting together the True and Podcast Festival, she's amazing. She's a dynamo. And I just want to say, like, congratulations on getting this thing together, Lisa. We're really excited to do it.
4: Yeah. Yeah. We're really happy to be there.
3: All right. Should we finally start the show? Yeah. Or should we talk some more about the White Shadow?
4: I don't think the people... <laughs> Want to hear any more White Shadow? I
3: just, I imagine like all people listening to this like just Googling, like, what the fuck yeah. is the White Shadow? What are you guys going to- In me. And I have
4: no idea what it is. Uh-huh. I'm Googling
3: it right uh-huh.
4: now. Are you guys going to talk about Room
3: 222?
4: <laughs> <laughs> what other 70s drama can you-
3: What's Room 222?
4: It <laughs> was a 70s drama about high school.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah. I...
4: Starsky and Hutch. Yeah. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman.
3: Fantasy uh, yeah. Island. <laughs>
7: yeah. Welcome back, Cotter.
5: <laughs> all right. Oh, my God. I'm looking at the. Oh wow! There's some angry-looking people in the white shadow. Oh wow! Really? Except for the white guy, he looks super happy.
3: They're angry. Coach
6: or salami?
3: (laughs) I don't know. They're angry because. They're being stereotyped for a <laughs> white savior bullshit show,
4: including salami.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
5: All right. Oh, because he's a former pro basketball player. That's right. Helps turn the team from losers to winners, both on and off the court. <laughs> this sounds like an after-school special. <laughs> yeah,
6: it's like Dangerous oh, Minds. Better than that.
3: It's the Bad News Bears. But also with race stuff. <laughs> oh, you can watch it online. <laughs> All right. Can you? Okay. Laura, you ready to start the show? Yes or no? We're about to I'm talk ready. about something I, intense. Well, well, I know I'm learning something new, though. So i am move on. Move on. All right. Well, we are going to talk about something intense now. And I just want to give our listeners a bit of a, a warning. We're not going to talk about any of. Uh, The details of the content of the next thing we're talking about. But if you are triggered by hearing about things about uh, sexual abuse, uh, you may want to just lightly skim the next part of our show. Uh, But again, I think you'll be okay with the subject that we're going to talk about. So last fall, Michigan Radio and NPR came out with the podcast Believed, a raw, powerful look at the stories of the victims of U.S. gymnastics trainer Larry Nassar. Now, a new HBO documentary covers the same. Ground At the Heart of Gold dives into the beginnings of the scandal, who enabled the abuse, and who suffered as a result. Hi, nice to meet
7: you, there. Yeah,
0: you. For me, he was like a friend that I could go to.
2: I really thought that he had been helping me. He was so good at being who he was. I would text
0: him almost daily. We really loved him.
6: This is the Olympic doctor.
3: Wow.
0: What have you done?
3: At the Heart of Gold doesn't have the amount of time Believed had to tell its story, so it goes for breadth instead of depth. Nevertheless, it gives voice to the sex assault victims and leaves the viewer wondering why more wasn't done to prevent it. Now, I do want to talk about that podcast TV show format comparison. Now, Kevin, we should say Believed just won a Peabody Award. Mm Mm-hmm and In the Dark did not, which is a separate conversation. Hey, you
4: can, only, but can believed, only give one. It's yeah. true, but
3: Believed is an an outstanding podcast that looks at this story. Mm -hmm. And many of the elements in the show were the same as we heard and believed, including the host of the gymnastic podcasts, uh, which we heard and believed, and also in this, and a lot of the same voices. But it felt different formatically. It also felt like it had a slightly different focus. Can you talk about that?
4: Yeah. You know going in that you only have about an hour and a half, and so they don't have the luxury that Believe did, where they could take an episode... And really look at each of the different gym—not each gymnast—but they could look at a gymnast who was uh, a victim and tell her story. Mm-hmm. So instead, what they did is they seem to look at the system and uh, about you know the organization and and the failures uh, of that, while still giving us the stories of, of some of the uh, the victims involved. So you you know they don't get short shrift necessarily, but it also looks. I think a little more trying to like, okay, well, who was responsible? Right. It wasn't just Nasser, And let's start connecting some of the dots here.
3: That's right. We hear that the U.S. Olympic Committee knew. USA Gymnastics knew. That coach Kathy Clagus knew. Adults protected other adults. That is a theme throughout this that was present and believed, but that's more of the focus of this, I think. And then there are also, I think, the the, the interviews with the victims, there are, there are more face-to-face gymnasts, dancers, other people that we sort of see It's a little bit different formatically, but it does, you know, trot some of the grand same ground. I don't think that takes away from the story at all, though, right?
4: I agree, yeah. It's a different animal.
3: Right. Now, in Believed, we did hear about how brutal the sport of gymnastics is. And whereas in Believed, we sort of hear more graphic descriptions of the abuse that Larry Nassar did to these kids, in this documentary, At the Heart of Gold, one of the things that we see is the brutality of gymnastics as a sport. Laura, can you just talk about... What it takes to be a gymnast what we see these little tiny girls going through the racking the pain all that stuff I was horrified <laughs> by what I saw yeah. there mm-hmm. it was like awful you know I and I'm saying you know my
5: son did gymnastics when he was like four when it was like fun and all the kids went to gymnastics and you're like oh this is good it's getting the kids active and you know getting you see something like this when you see the girls that are now you know setting their sights on the Olympics setting their sights on competition. And a couple things really horrified me, just some of the descriptions, like, you know, how they had to just keep working and keep going despite their injuries. And they compared it to being like a wounded animal and a soldier. You know, when you saw video of the girls, like, was it racking where they had their legs split apart and the coach is like pushing them down. And I'm like, Oh my, it's like abuse. I mean, so we have like the sexual abuse of these girls at the hands of Larry Nassar. And then you have the abuse of these girls at the hands of their coaches. And, you know, I'll say the industry, the sport that is condoning this type of behavior. I think it was very effective in that it sort of really set up how it was that Larry Nassar was able to get away with what he did for so long because You know, you can see how you've got the physical pain of what these girls are going through in terms of the training at the hands of their coaches. And that's a very different type of pain than, you know, the emotional sexual abuse that Larry Nassar is committing. Mm -hmm. But you can kind of see how when they are going from that physical pain of training to Larry Nassar, you could see how he actually in their perception of the world, how he kind of comes across in a more sympathetic light yeah. because he's giving them candy and he's helping them and, and they don't realize that what he's doing to them is wrong. It's just so twisted in terms of their reality and the way that they are being trained. It was yeah. so
4: weird because because part of the treatment, the non sexual assault part of the treatment, was somewhat beneficial to them as athletes. Right. No, but so it was, also, it was it ended up being a really weird way for them to try to process what just happened to me. Right.
3: But the heo was also the good cop. In yeah. Right. Scenario. Yeah. 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 Right. That's be, what I was trying to say. And this is the whole thing. Yeah. Like they'd be abused. We saw that coach at Twist Stars, that super asshole, as the girl calls him, like the, the devil, s- Satan. Yeah. And he's an asshole. And you see that woman, Kathy clagan that the horrible woman and the see all horrible coaches mm-hmm. they go to larry and larry's their friend he's the one they can text he's the one they can yeah. whatever he's the good cop in the scenario on purpose now toby i know you had some thoughts about competitive gymnastics at the elite level and its treatment of girls and young women do you want to talk about that a little bit
6: i could talk about it for a long time yeah um so i, I think there's a there's a bunch of interesting things that were sort of shown in the documentary, which is what I what I thought I really liked about it. They talk about how at one point gymnastics was really young women, right, who are like in their early 20s. And that those were the competitors. And then it changed to now, like the competitors are, you know, in their teens, which means in order to get like close to the pinnacle, they have to be like even younger, you know, right before they take that step. So So suddenly you've got these very young girls who are these highly trained highly skilled athletes and then you kind of add to that the fact that you know for the most part their bodies aren't their own right you know in the way they're being treated and you can just see that in that both the way they're pushed uh the idea what's his face the Romanian guy Bela
3: Caroli Caroli
6: I keep wanting to say Bella Lugosi.
3: Yeah. Bella and Marta Caroli.
6: <laughs> in his idea that by like doing intense training you can keep them from physically maturing and, you know, keep them with little girl bodies. So you've got that dynamic going on where you've got these young girls, they're learning that they don't really get to make decisions about what goes on with their bodies in this situation. You know, it's like get back out there with your fractured leg or you, you can't stretch enough, so I'm going to like lean on you. And then there are those awful videos of, which I guess are sort of instructional videos of Larry Nasser, where he's just like grabbing different parts of their body while he's talking. It seems like you've got all these things and then you've got these coaches who are just absolute assholes, like all of them. It's just primed for a guy like Nasser to be able to deal with with girls who are used to people making demands on their bodies, but usually those people are mean and then he's nice. So it seems like you've got that setup, which, you know, obviously is freaking horrendous. Right. And then the the last thing is that I think the girls are kind of seen as expendable, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're like, if you like cry out in pain, if, you, if you're not stoic enough, you know, there's like five other girls who want to take your place. Right. So you've got, like, thousands and thousands of girls across the country who are really competing for, you know, six, eight, ten spots in the Olympics. So any particular girl is essentially disposable. And there's that story about the girl with a broken leg who says, I can't compete. Ugh. And that asshole is like, get your fucking stuff and get the fuck out of here. To, like, yeah. some 14-year-old girl who's with a broken leg. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole thing is, like, they, I think they say, like, breaking them down like mm-hmm. break them down yep. and then you're surprised that you know a predator would be there to take take advantage of that situation
3: one of the things i liked about the documentary is that there's more here than just the gymnastics world but i do like how they go into the caroli ranch in this documentary because bela and marta caroli have shaped not just u.s gymnastics but g- competitive gymnastics for like since the 70s so for like what like almost 50 years
7: you're right yeah he
3: was the Romanian coach who trained Nadia Comaneci he was the one who developed the whole idea during communism where you can just take the most talented kindergartners and like take them from their families and like you're gonna be a gymnast and you're gonna and start with a thousand of them and then eight years later you have five that are perfect mm-hmm. like that was his idea and they are now doing that in the United States and they have co-opted the olympic system in the united states and usa gymnastics and made it a requirement for once a month all these young women and girls to go to their super fucking creepy texas ranch uh which is not like what i always imagined it in my mind when Mm -hmm. you talk about the crowley ranch like that's not what i pictured i pictured some like olympic looking training facility not like Camp Belknap on Lake Winnipesaukee. Like it didn't little even
5: place look in the like woods. that. You know what it reminded me of? It was basically like a, a metal shed in the woods. Yeah. yeah. It reminded me of this time I covered this like dogfighting ring, and they had their dogfighting <laughs> shed in the woods. I mean, it was like it looked like uh, some sort of mafia hideout or right. something.
6: It looked like an agway. <laughs> Did you see those signs where they showed the sign to like Corolla Ranch? And then there was a couple of other signs, and they're all like littered with, with bullets. Yes, <laughs> and dance. yes.
3: It was it, crazy. It was, nuts. It is it was Texas. totally nuts. Now we do get into all the other um, young women that Larry Nassar was able to prey on uh, mm-hmm. dancers, other athletes, athletes in non Olympic but competitive gyms at Michigan State University at Twist Stars, all these places he was able to sort of access all these young women and then we hear from uh, Rachel Den Hollander, who is, after many other people accused Nassar, the first person who kind of goes public. She is just one of many, many, many freaking badass women who we actually see talking to the camera in this documentary, including one who says that according to court documents, she was abused 846 times.
4: Oh, well, really?
3: Yeah. 846. Wow. Yeah. wow. Uh, Laura, what did you think about all of the women, including Dominic Mocianu, uh, Olympic gymnast, Rachel Den Hollander, all these other young women and, and women that we see just start talking about decades of like socialized abuse by this guy? You know, as I was
5: watching it, the thing that really kept coming back to me was, A, it's you know, amazingly brave, you know, that they're they're going public and talking about this and they're talking about this at court. But the thing that kept coming back to me was just sort of the way that this abuse was carried out and covered up and condoned that these girls didn't realize for so long that this was abuse, even though they're like, this is a little weird. And then when they have that realization of what it meant and what was really happening, Seeing that sort of awakening in them was really just heartbreaking. But the part that made me so enraged watching this was just the way that the adults around these children either ignored the reports, covered it up, didn't do anything about it. It was like watching like the Catholic Church or some of the private schools where we've had sex abuse scandals. And I was just so pissed off that like these kids had to go through this for so long I I couldn't with their parents in the room. I mean, it was just like these people were brainwashed, the parents into like, we're so lucky to have Larry in our lives. I think one of them said I'm like, so it was just heartbreaking to watch that sort of process
3: of realization of what was really happening. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a spectrum. I mean, some of the young women knew immediately this wasn't right. I'm being abused. Mm -hmm. You don't need to reach into my vagina to cure my ankle. Right. And other young women were like, I thought it was normal because my dad was in the room and like if he's doing it with my dad in the room, like it has to be fine. I mean, it's it's very believable like yeah. how this would happen. But one of the other things the documentary focuses on, which I really enjoyed just sort of thinking about, not just watching, but thinking about, was what happened in the courtroom. So Larry Nassar is finally uh, The thing that tips the scales publicly from people defending him publicly, people saying, oh, he might be a bad guy, is the images found on his computer. Right. 37,000 of them where he actually had images of himself abusing young women and other images, which, by the way, his lawyer says is not a high volume. Kevin, you think that's a high volume? 37,000 images?
4: Uh, I think that sounds like the Library of Congress uh, of of child porn. Yes,
3: yes. Well,
5: I had a case once. I feel like it was like 100,000 images. Oh, that one. I remember- A lawyer getting a bunch of paper, like actual stacks of paper to show like how much that actually was. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah.
3: Well, one of the things that we get, though, is that legal question, because we have a situation here where the trial has happened. It's time for sentencing. And the very, very big character judge, Rosemary Aquilina, decides to just keep the sentencing phase open for anyone who wants to give victim impact statements. Right. And it starts with a handful, and then as publicity grows, more and more show up, and it ends up being like more than 100.
4: 158, I think it was. Get to
3: give their victim impact statements. First of all, Kevin, what would you think of that judge? (laughs) Like, like seriously, because there's a question here. It's a devil's advocate part, and then there's like, you know, like, what did you think of this judge?
4: Okay, so she had... uh... A little bit of attitude on. I don't know if um, they're elected or not. I don't know. Because, you know, certainly she knows that the camera's going to be on her. So this is the way she's going to conduct herself. And she was really great for letting everybody come in and whatnot. I feared that day that her sort of, she did grandstand a little bit at sentencing. Mm. And I'm like, is this going to be grounds for an appeal? Now, I realize now if he's pleading guilty... He has waived his right to appeal, so I'm like, okay, maybe I shouldn't worry so much about that. Did you and know about the
3: letter though? When you when you thought
4: that? The, no, I was no, I was thinking. I just signed your death warrant. I mean, because some judge in other cases, when judges say something snotty to somebody that they're sentencing, especially in a capital case, yeah. it has been grounds for an appeal. So I was like, damn, do you really want to like go through this whole thing and fuck it up with something dumb like that? I was a little worried about you know, could you maybe just play it straight and get this guy to jail and not do something stupid in the meantime? Yeah. But you got to give her props for letting the victim impact statements go on as long as they needed to go
3: on. I have to say, when I I saw the TV coverage of the thing when it happened, I had the same concern you did. I was very glad the victim impact statements were allowed to happen. I had the same concerns about the judge being so outspoken. I didn't know about the letter until this documentary. Ah, okay, yeah. The letter that he sent the judge, whining, I knew that he had whined and complained about his treatment. I didn't know that he had that quote in that letter, hell hath no fury, like, Uh, oh,
7: yeah,
6: that oops. I'm like, you know what?
3: Judge Aquilina, I fucking get it. I see you. Toby, what do you think?
6: You know, it's it's the uh, truth and reconciliation model, right? Mm. It's get the truth out there.
3: Laura, I suspect that you would like to be friends with this judge, Rosemary Aquilina. Yes or no? Am I wrong?
5: I would like to have a cocktail with her and say, <laughs> nice job. I loved her. We I was did just, your hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just loved that she was willing to put it out there and and that she was just like, yeah, fuck you. This is not going to fly, Larry Nasser. Mm hmm. Sit still, get comfortable. Mm hmm. I loved it.
3: Yeah. I have to say, I have, like, I'll, I'll just say it again. I always have concerns about process. And I do believe even Larry Nassar, maybe the worst person in the entire world, deserves a fair and decent process. And I don't think his lawyer was necessarily right about the mob mentality, but I do see how sort of the clapping and stuff in the courtroom could be seen as problematic. When I heard the letter he wrote to the judge, it changed a lot for me. And I sort of got it in a way I didn't get it before. And I like her too. I'd buy her a cocktail as well uh, if we ever got the chance to do so. Well, Maybe we should just do what we do and, you know, not sort of like belabor the details. Because I really want people to watch it, you know, at the heart of gold on HBO. Let's just give our round-robin review of this documentary. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for this HBO documentary on the Larry Nassar case. What do you think?
5: I'm going with thumbs up. I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing to watch. Um, there's a lot of times watching it where you're getting, if you're me, Enraged about what these girls went through. What I liked about this is that you know it picked up some of the areas that the podcast that we uh, reviewed about this case didn't get as much into in terms of holding the adults around this industry and this sport accountable and kind of showing where there was breakdowns in terms of. People that could have done something about this sooner that didn't, and and how they were eventually held accountable for that. So I would say thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you?
6: Uh, yeah, I agree with Laura. I, you know, I, I think they actually the believed podcast and this sort of complement each other. Mm. Um, so I think you can listen and then watch both of them, and I think they between the two of them give you a pretty broad picture of what went on. And again, like like Laura said, it's not easy. But it's sort of an extreme, a very extreme example of, I think, things that we need to confront about sort of sports culture Mm. in our country. You know, we didn't even talk about it, but they talked a little bit about is that all the money that's involved in this, how much money is at stake in having like a top women's gymnastics program. So all along the way, you've got all these people making a lot of money except for the actual girls themselves. Right up until the point where if they win the gold, they become celebrities, maybe. But again, that's like 0.001% or something. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely worth watching.
3: I agree with you. And the thing you said there, Toby, I will just like underline the amateur sports culture. And I put amateur in quote quotes because it's amateur for them, but not for the people who are profiting off of them, is to me the like next wave of criminal justice uh, storytelling. I mean, we heard a little bit with the Aaron Hernandez podcast. It's something that's come up a lot around great reporting around the NCAA and now Believed and this. These young people who are talented are being abused and taken advantage of, not just by predators like Larry Nassar, but also by this system that benefits and profits from basically ruining their bodies, ruining their psyches, And in this case, the Larry Nassar, allowing them, not ignorant of, but actively allowing them to be sexually abused. I think this was a pretty good documentary. I loved the Believe podcast. I think at the heart of gold, like Toby said, is a great companion to it. It adds another layer to it. Just the visuals of these women doing gymnastics. I mean, you know, everything we say about what we're doing to their, you know, bodies and all the stuff that they go through, they are also phenomenally talented young athletes. And also, all the other when we hear from in this, the dancers, the sort of amateur athletes that also get abused. I would hate for their voices to be lost in this. And I think this documentary does a great job bringing them forth. a so thumbs up for me. What about you, Kevin?
4: Yeah, I'm also a thumbs up. I think this is, um, like Toby said, a compliment to the Believed podcast. I'll admit I didn't listen to Believed all the way to Completion But I I did think that the episodes that we did listen to for our review were very powerful. I think this is sort of a little different tone. It's not as intense. And I think in the amount of time that it's covered, I think it covers a lot of good ground and does raise some questions. It It will leave you angry.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
2: Hey, it's me, your barista. So, you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome.
6: New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious.
3: Moving on, the second season of Slate Presents brings us Charged. Host Emily Bazelon spent two years examining New York's special gun court for defendants of firearms charges. Billed as an innovative and speedy method for handling these kinds of crimes, she says there is political pressure to reform the system. The gun court was a forced marriage between a liberal desire for gun control and a promise of punishment
2: without mercy.
0: If you pick up a gun, uh, you will suffer the consequences. I think it's as simple as that.
2: Only it wasn't as simple as that. Inside the courtroom, the
3: stories of the people facing charges turned out to be very different from the TV bad guys described in the press conferences. Bazelon introduces us to a prosecutor and a defendant whose paths cross at gun court. The series attempts to do what Serial Season 3 did not, turn its long-form investigation into a unified narrative about the justice system. Now, we are going to be discussing plot points for charge through Episode 4. So if you want to stay spoiler-free, jump to the time code listed in our show notes. Now, Kevin, remember Emily Bazelon? Remember how we first got to know her? Mm. She used to come on the Colbert Report with Stephen Colbert and explain constitutional stuff. Oh, okay. That's Emily Bazelon. How do you think she's doing as host of this podcast? I think she's doing pretty well.
4: Yeah. She's got a nice, comfortable style. It reminds me a a little bit of uh, Sarah Koenig, but maybe it's probably because of the setup.
3: Yeah, I think she's a little bit more, she's a writer. She's a little little more efficient. Um, And I would say that my one tiny quibble with this podcast is she sounds like a reporter- who is also doing a podcast. It's Mm -hmm. my only quibble with it. Honestly, it's not about her. It's just about sort of the way that it's made. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is sort of the um, mission statement of the podcast. Emily Bazelon does have like a print piece that is sort of the intro to the podcast on Slate. And it says, quote, when gun control advocates discuss how to restrict access to weapons, they mostly talk about permit requirements and background checks. But that coin has another side punishment for people accused of possessing guns without the state's permission. And she also says, quote, most of the debate over guns in America pits the need to restrict gun ownership against the right to bear arms. And there's a crucial piece missing. Why do people have illegal guns and how should the state respond? It's interesting to me that she sees these two holes in the story. And Toby, one of the holes she points out is that gun rights advocates are not showing up for gun court and showing up for these kids who, as she lays out very neatly in the podcast, have bought guns to protect themselves, have bought guns because they feel like they need them. And these gun rights advocates are missing from the conversation.
6: Yeah, I don't feel like I really need to say it, but I don't think African-American gun owners are who most of these gun rights advocate people are really that concerned with. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about this program is that it's sort of taking two, I think, sort of politically liberal things and showing how there's some internal conflict there between wanting to make guns more rare, I guess. I don't think it's really confiscation, but making legal protocols a little more robust. And then also concerns about, you know, incarcerating incredible numbers of young men of color mm-hmm. um, and how in this case those two things are there's some tension
3: it was interesting to me to hear that backstory about bill de Blasio mayor of New York City who the cops hated because he basically halted the stop-and-frisk program which they really liked even though a lot of people could point to its constitutional violations and it's what did you say four out of five young black men in New York were stopped, and stopped mm-hmm. in stop and in frisk incidents so the police hated him But they also hated, you know, people having guns. So he created this program that both appeased left-leaning gun rights activists and the cops who hated him. And this was a program that sort of met the middle ground, except that it also had risks. It also had this kid Terari that we hear, which we'll get into a second, like finds himself in a situation where he's going to a brand new court with a whole new set of rules. In all, Terari
2: spent two weeks in jail. When he got home, it was a big relief. But it didn't last, because then Try and his mom talked to his lawyer. And then she calls us and she tells us, well, the lease here will do is two or three to five years. And I'm like, whoa, what are you talking about? My son is not doing no jail. She said, well, you know, he was caught with a gun and her whole everything just changed.
3: The other thing that I think is really interesting about this podcast is The way that it's framed through the stories of these two men, Terari and Eric Gonzalez. First, let's talk about Terari and his mother, Valinda. Young man living in Brooklyn, very relatable in many ways, and I think does something that, Laura, you talked about Serial Season 3 not doing super well at. Really laying out the real story of this kid, of his family, the background, the circumstances, the timeline. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the way this podcast is put together, the frame of these two men?
5: Well, I, I loved it. That was one of, you know, the things I know we talked about with season three of Serials. It was like gonna be like, you know, going into one court system and breaking it down and it was just disjointed. Here we have, you know, so far we've got four episodes and, and we have these central characters and we're following them. So Terari, he's a compelling character because you know, we hear about his upbringing, we hear about how he loved music since he was, you know, in the womb and how he was like a talented rapper and, you know, but he was shy and when he finally went public with his music, how people reacted to him. So we hear, you know, that this is like a sensitive kid. We're we're coming invested in his story and then at the same time we're hearing the story of Eric Gonzalez, who, you know, grew up in the same area. You know, he's older than him, but, you know, I think it was, what, it was like 25 blocks apart or whatever, 25 years apart. But they, they grew up and also struggled growing up with the situation on the streets and fighting off people that wanted to fight him and steal his sneakers. I feel like I definitely have a window into both of these men's lives in such a way that I want to keep listening week to week, But at the same time, we're actually getting a really good picture of what's happening in that particular justice system through them. So it's very effective.
3: Now, Toby, one of the things I always think about when I hear podcasts like this, looking at the criminal justice system, looking at like how young black men are affected by these stories, looking at their contacts with police, I can't help but think about, you know, sort of the relatability, the quote unquote relatability of like, how you have to cross that bridge as a storyteller where you're sort of telling the story of somebody who has a lot of contact with the police, somebody who procured a gun to protect himself, somebody who, you know, has already had a lawsuit against police for brutality, somebody who lives in a neighborhood where, like, you know, he has to join the Bloods just to sort of be able to get through high school. And how hard it is to make it so that a person listening to the podcast, uh, like, has to now relate to this character to really kind of get it. How did a gun get in this kid's hand? How do we get beyond the fact that on its face he committed a crime by having this gun?
6: Yeah, I think Terari's a a a really appealing person. I think he's an easy person to like and to kind of root for and and that he, you know, he seems very sweet natured. And because of that, like his his decisions, his sort of questionable decisions seem understandable because, you know, he's coming from a place where he's... You know, I think just generally not a violent person. But I, I think the other, the other kind of weird thing that this whole sort of series had me thinking about was we we get a lot of podcasts of white journalists doing podcasts about the African American community, which I think kind of asks some questions about who who has access to like making podcasts and having them. Distributed and becoming very popular, right? So you know, I think they're they're kind of those two things, and I think there's a question, you know, if it's a if it's a white journalist, are they looking for a slightly different story than maybe an African American journalist mm. would? Good
3: question, Toby. Very good question. I actually like. I'm really glad that you said that because that's something I kept thinking about the whole time I was listening to this. And one of the reasons why I feel that this podcast does service to this story in a way that others have not is because of the inclusion of Eric Gonzalez right so Eric Gonzalez is the D.A. he's now the elected right. D.A. in Brooklyn we hear about his election and his sort of ascendance as to the D.A. we hear about his background He doesn't say this, but it's like sort of on its face there, like the there but for the grace of God go I like his many, many intersections in his life where he could have ended up in a very similar situation to Terrar. He had a brother who died of being shot in the face by a drug dealer and he is like the D.A. that. What do they say in Spider-Man? Like the one we don't deserve or the one we like Like he is. I love him. He's unbelievable because of where he comes from. And he has a very strong voice in this. And he's the man. He's law enforcement.
4: Yeah. Yeah. He got pretty emotional too, talking. Many times. Um, yeah. Many times. I thought it was really interesting that as he is coming up that he felt like what was going on in his family and, like, if people knew, like, from what neighborhood he was from, that it would reflect poorly on him professionally?
5: Yeah. At work, Eric didn't talk about the fights he got into growing up or about being around drugs and guns.
1: I always thought that if that was publicly known in the DA's office, it would undermine me or maybe they thought I would be conflicted. I wasn't conflicted, but I did see... The people who I was prosecuting in totally different uh, lenses than my colleagues, because I, I never felt that there was a separation between them and me. Like they were neighbors.
3: That was real.
4: Yeah, and I'm kind of. I guess I would be surprised if I, if he were a coworker and he said that to me. Like I'd be like, I'm surprised that you would think that. But it's probably true it in the situation that he's yeah. at. That Why like, maybe we people, him? Yeah. people, you know, we like, oh, no, no, be yourself. You can't, you know, not your brother's keeper, all that other stuff. But it, probably in that kind of environment, that yeah, I mean, people, especially when you if you have coworkers that see things in black and white, right? And a lot of times prosecutors do. I mean, they see themselves in and, this, cops and, and cops and who he has to work with. Yeah, you know, like we're we're the law, and, and there's no gray area. So I found it really interesting.
3: Now, Laura Bricker is in love with Brooklyn D.A. Eric Gonzalez. Is she? Is she I not? am. Yes. I'm sorry, Fireman Ken.
7: But, um, <laughs> well, and I'm sorry. I think he's
3: married with kids
5: and all that. But, you know, it's just we've heard these other stories where we hear about, like, how broken the justice system is and how, you know, you hear a case like Terrari and you've got no hope because it's like this person is up against all odds. And here, I'm really curious to keep listening because we have somebody leading the system who's got a completely different view about incarceration and a completely different view and he's causing a lot of waves. I did a little reading on him as I was stalking him this week and uh,
7: <laughs>
0: sorry, I, I don't know where us. he lives.
5: I'm sorry, Eric. Uh, no, I didn't look up your house. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe I did. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm
4: just
5: <laughs> uh, Sorry, Tobes. Ain't nothing um, like
4: a stalker who's a private investigator stalker. I know.
5: But what, what I'm really interested to hear now is like we have a completely different setup because we have somebody inside the system who wants to change the system. And I want to know what happens now when the system fights him. So that's what I'm really interested in hearing as this goes forward.
3: No, I completely agree with you. He's such an interesting voice. He is the DA who wants to do like he's secretly, not secretly, but he's sort of under the radar keeping this YCP program alive, which is politically problematic it's like the Willie Horton like bomb that they're waiting to explode. Like mm-hmm. they let one kid into this program, this kid commits another crime, and like it's over. But they know it works, and they want to keep it alive. It's fascinating. So the political tightrope that he's walking on, other people are walking on, and that he also thinks about just like basic things like communication talking to victims' families and, and, and perpetrators' families, like, telling them what's going on. He's a fascinating character. I have, like, a, a an ethical question I want to run by each of you guys. So we do hear about this YCP diversion program, which is very interesting. It started as, like, a religious-public uh, partnership. And they were screening Tarare for it. And basically the way that it looks is that he either goes to gun court and he could go to prison for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Or if they select him for diversion, if he fucks up a little bit, he can go to jail for 15 years. But as the podcast points out, it might not be him fucking up. It literally might be him crossing the street and getting stopped and frisked and getting any any contact with police, period, which we hear in the podcast very efficiently laid out could happen through no fault of his own. Gets him 15 years or he could get off with no criminal record. What would you tell your kid to do?
5: It's really hard
3: because even
5: the attorney says, maybe you should go live with your grandparents for a little while. I mean, but I mean, I'm not it's not lost on me that my kid's white, so I don't think that he would be facing the same
3: level of scrutiny as Tarare is facing, yeah. Well, if he wasn't white, what would you tell him to do?
5: I don't even... uh, It's it's, it's kind of like I feel like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. It's like, yeah, go in this program and pretty much like be a monk and hide until it's over. Because, you know, if anything goes awry, you're fucked. Yeah. And I, I don't really feel like that is the purpose of those programs. So don't even... You know, it just... It's so goes against that whole rehabilitation diversion because it's like, yeah, okay, we have this diversion program over here. This is all great. But guess what? It's set up in such a way that you're going to fail. Yeah. So like, what the fuck? Sorry, but it just, is stupid. It makes me so angry.
3: Now I have a question uh, for you, Toby, because Terari has had the benefit, which many people do not, of having many adults sort of acknowledge and he's he's been given opportunities to live along the way. We hear the story about him getting the job because he held the door open for the woman at McDonald's. He gets this great lawyer who really helps him with his civil case against the police and helps him get that settlement. And then, of course, we have Maxim, the lawyer, who is his lawyer for this gun case, who is also an immigrant with his own backstory and his own sort of intersection with a persecution in the criminal justice system who wants to help. So here we have a pattern here. We have Eric Gonzalez, the DA, whose own life could have gone a different direction and whose brother's life went in a different direction. And we have Maxim. And the question that it sort of left me with is why is it that you have to have your own, like, face to face, okay, I get it, I feel it, it could have happened to me situation in order to just do the fucking right thing? Because what both of these men want to do, Maxim and Eric Gonzalez, is like, they just want to do the right thing. They're like, here's a situation. Uh, we're not going to like circumvent the system. We're going to work within the system, but we want to make it work for us and do the right thing, get to the truth. Like, why is it that you have to like be faced with a thing and, and like have your own potential consequence in order to just like make the fucking right call? Why is that?
6: Uh, That's a good question. I think there, there, there is a sense when you haven't been in that situation that people who do get themselves in those situations are always making bad decisions Mm. And so that if you've been in a situation, you've had a variety of bad options that you've had to choose from, and that you can, you can I think be more empathetic for people who are in a similar situation where it's like I wouldn't normally get a gun, but I'm worried that I'm going to like get the crap beat out of me or possibly killed or whatever if I don't have one. That's like a serious. That's a thing. So I think that's that's part of it, and then I think there's also you know. I think there are people who would agree with them and, and feel that way, but may not have the same sort of sense of urgency about those kinds of things as somebody who's actually dealt with it themselves. So that they both sort of sought out situations in which they could be effective in in helping people mm-hmm. who had similar experiences where, you know, somebody else who might feel the same way about those issues. Because they don't have like such a close, you know, experience with it or whatever, may not feel quite as motivated to make that their life's work.
3: Right. Well, they didn't read Bonfire of the Vanities. That's what happened to them.
6: <laughs> well, yeah.
3: And he likes I loved that part. You know? Oh God, I love that. No, um, er- Eric Gonzalez read Bonfire of the Vanities, and Terari listened to Rigoletto.
6: Oh, that's right. That's it's right.
3: R- like, like the cultural references in this are just coming from every direction. I'm like, what are you guys doing over there in Brooklyn? <laughs>
6: See, that, that's another thing where I think that seems like that's pointing towards the NPR audience. Mm. Like
3: a little bit. Those
6: are those are two people. It's like, oh, my God, that, that kid looks Rigoletto
3: It's probably the one fact that Emily pulled out of him where she's like, oh, white people will love this. I'm going to include it. Right.
6: right.
3: Um, <laughs> no, no, you're not wrong. I thought the same thing. I mean, I was much more interested in hearing more about his experience with the Bloods. But that was been kind of that's mini- kind of minimized. <laughs> and the uh, the Rigoletto detail is sort of brought out for us to see. Like, there's more here, white people, right?
6: I had the thing about him playing cards with the
3: Albanian uh, mafia, the Albanian yeah.
6: mobsters. That was
3: my favorite detail <laughs> in the whole podcast.
6: Yeah, it's like probably the same guys who. Uh, uh, you know, put out the hit on What's-His-Face from uh, To Live and Die in LA.
3: A hundred percent, yes. No, <laughs> I love that detail too. It was great. Uh, so final question for you, Kevin. Another quote in Emily Bazelon's article leading into the podcast. This podcast isn't a story in the true crime genre. It's what comes next, a true punishment story.
4: Yeah, she keeps referring to it that way. We
3: haven't gotten to the punishment part yet, but is that what we need right now? We need to hear more about the punishment.
4: Yeah, we need to see where this story is, is ultimately going. They, they've teased a uh, plot twist for episode five, yes, uh, for the Advocate, yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm still kind of like, all right, you've you've set up a lot of different things here. Let's see where all this stuff goes.
3: All right, well, let's do what we do. Let's talk about Charged and give it our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Do you recommend to our audience? They listen to it. If you want to find it on your podcast feed, it's called Slate Presents Colon Charged. Laura Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? What do you think?
5: Two big thumbs up. Um, This is the type of justice system podcast I've been waiting for. I only hope it delivers the way that now I've built it up. But I think it's just a super interesting story. And I love Eric Gonzalez, the district attorney. Um, The first episode ended with a quote that I am really hoping was a tease to good things to come for Terrari. Um, where they said she said uh, Eric Gonzalez was born in the position to shape the futures of a lot of people who had come up the way he had, starting with Terari, mm. something along those lines. And I'm like, okay, let's hope that actually is the case. So really interesting, good characters, people you're invested
3: in. Two thumbs up. Toby Ball, well, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Slate Presents Colon
6: Charged? Yeah, I think I think thumbs up. We didn't even talk about like the Records Island episode, which I thought was. Super interesting. So, yeah. Definitely.
3: Yeah, so I'm going to give a thumbs up to Charged. I really like it. I think it's very efficient in its reporting. It gets through a lot of the bigger issues that have been reported elsewhere, like issues around bail, issues around community policing, issues around uh, sort of the, the the push and pull between cops and civil rights advocates and the closing down of Rikers Island. And that episode was very interesting to me. I will say I do have a couple of critiques of the style of this podcast it does seem, as we've alluded to, a little bit packaged and delivered for a liberal white audience to be able to relate to. The way that it gets over that for me is through the strength and the voices of Terari, of Eric Gonzalez, of Terari's mom. There's a lot of tape of the right people to hear from in this podcast that to me overcomes kind of the packaged clinical nature of it, the digestible nature of it. So for me, it's a good thumbs up. I like it overall. I think it's a really compelling story. I plan to continue listening to it. Kevin, where are you on this podcast?
4: I'm thumbs up, but kind of barely. It's good because I, I like that that it's uh, looking at an issue that we haven't really dealt with before. And it's looking at this particular you know method for justice here, the gun court, which I didn't even know existed. And I, I see that they've put together two characters here that in theory, ought to be able to, you know, you ought to be able to stitch these two guys together and t- and give a good narrative. You know, some of it I feel like if Terari and Eric were fictional characters, like in a book, you'd be like, kind of a little cliche here, like, oh, here's the, the tough kid from the streets who just needs a gun to protect himself, and he's, uh, but he also likes Rigoletto. You know, it just seems like the details are just, if it weren't for the they're fact that they're a real person. Yeah. yeah So I'd like to see where it goes. Uh, So like I said, we've set it up. And hopefully that it it comes to a a place where if you're not going to tell me something new, tell me something I don't know and that will enlighten me. And I think that makes for a juicy story.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
2: Hey, it's me, your barista. So, you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome.
6: New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious.
3: Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime of of the Week. week. Pennsylvania officials finally caught their most wanted scofflaw. Jared Stiff (laughs) is the Commonwealth's (laughs) most egregious toll evader. The driver with the ironic name is accused of running the toll booth twice a day for five years. That's more than 2200 times, adding up to one hundred and twenty eight thousand dollars in tolls and fees. News reports don't say how they know Mr. Stiff was running the tolls for five years. And if so, why they didn't do something about it in 2012. A judge ordered Mr. Stiff to pay eleven thousand five hundred dollars and put on five years probation. It's all part of a crackdown by state officials to collect back tolls on those who owe more than $2,000. Now, I heard this story and all I could think of was, uh, guys, sometimes these little things tend to add up, (laughs) especially for someone like me. So my question for the panel is, did you ever have a fee or fine that you perhaps ignored a little bit too long? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Oh, yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
5: So when I was in college... I got pretty lazy about walking, so I used to park in spaces behind um, one of the administrative buildings that I wasn't supposed to park in. At UNH? Yeah. They don't like that shit there. They don't, and I got many tickets that I ignored until one day I went out and I had the boot. Mm. And so I had the boot, and this was the irony. This is like my shitty college car. I think it was my Volkswagen. It was my Volkswagen Golf. And... um, The cost to get the boot off was actually more than the car was worth. I was in the process of getting rid of the car. So I like had a little temper tantrum and I was like, you could just have the car. I'm donating it. And they were like, no, we're sorry. You have to pay
3: your fines. So that's what happened to me. (laughs) What about you, Toby Ball? Have you ever let a fine or fee go a little bit too long?
6: I would love to pile on UNH parking services. Um, (laughs) But instead, when I was living in D.C., the way – like parking around our – the building where I worked, like it was zoned. So you weren't actually supposed to park there. But I think you had like two hours and you had to move your car or whatever. But every once in a while I would park just because I would be running late or whatever. And we were right by this middle school. And what the kids after school would do is they'd just walk down the line and take the tickets – off the cars and throw them in the woods. <laughs> so oh. when you like, you look in the woods and there'd just be all these parking tickets. So one day I came out and there was a there was a boot on my car, and I went back in. I was like, "Fuck!" So I called uh, DC Parking Services. I was like, "I got a boot on my car." So I'm just talking to the guy and he's like, "Oh, you've got like all these tickets." And I was like, "Yeah, you know, I parked by this middle school and the kids just throw the things." And he's like, Well, what color boot do you have? And I was like, Orange. He's like, Oh, that's the worst of the you know, there's a
7: white, a red, and
6: an orange. You got the worst one. I was like, I got the worst one. <laughs> the worst boot. And boot. Oh, uh, no. and he's like, he's like, hold on a second, let me see what I can do. He goes away, he comes back on, he's like, Okay, I wiped out all your tickets. <gasps> oh and I was like, What? <laughs> he's like, he's like, I've been doing this for eight hours. You're the first person who's not yelled at me like I was the reason why they got a boot. Wow. And he was like, and if you want to get the boot off your car, you know, this is what you got to jack it up and then you get a crowbar and then you got to roll it forward and then the boot will come off. And I was like, yeah, I'm on a pretty busy road. I don't, I don't <laughs> see that working out for me. <laughs> uh, but then I, I went in and and uh, he like wiped out like $350 worth of tickets wow. that's great
4: wow and now we know yeah. how to get
6: the I boot off our made. car thank too thank
3: you Toy Bowl public service announcement get the crowbar there thanks go. to yeah.
6: us at the $25 Patreon level I will explain <laughs> how to get the boot off
3: now I would love to say that like I am not one of the people who f- doesn't pay parking tickets I don't get many parking tickets as we live in a very rural place but we do live near a m- tiny city Concord, New Hampshire where the tickets are literally $5, but if you ignore them long enough, they become $160. Yeah. I paid one of those yesterday.
4: Wait, what? <laughs> oh, man.
3: Because as far as I'm concerned, when you get a ticket, it actually costs 160 Where do you get these tickets? Sorry babe, sorry. Cuz this is not the first time. We can't afford your cancer medication oh, this for
7: month. For the love
4: of Christ.
3: <laughs> so, oh, says the guy who was about to tell the story about how the only bad credit thing he's ever had is overdue library fines. If that's not the story you're about to tell. Okay. <laughs>
6: <laughs>
4: so, spoiler. So I one time rented rented when I took I checked out 3 audiobooks from <laughs> the Manchester Public Library. I didn't live there anymore, but I did work there, so I was able to take something out. So this is when you had to get those audiobooks like on CD or- Yes. Right. So I checked them out. I brought them back, turned them in, and I got another, you know, audiobook. And then later I found out, they said that I never turned in those three audio books. And I'm like, how? So how is that possible? I checked out one. If I hadn't checked those other ones in, you wouldn't have let me take another one out. And they're like, oh, well, you didn't have, you know, I was like, Fuck you on this.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and then we tried to buy a house. And then
4: the collection agency called, and I'm like, Are you fucking kidding me? You're looking for $50 in fun, fi- and you're calling me and putting a, a black mark on my credit report? I remember. We're we're a lit- fuck- I was, I'm still mad about we it. For
5: a it's
6: like that guy from Seinfeld. Fund. It's well,
5: horrible. I have to tell you, t- Kevin, I yeah. once covered a story over in my territory. Um, they they say they pulled over a guy in like Southampton, which is a very small town here, yeah. like population very small, and he had an outstanding warrant. Bring him in, and and they brought him in. And the outstanding warrant was he had like blockbuster
3: movies he hadn't. Yeah. <laughs> and so I feel your pain. And to be fair, Kevin, how many times in our adult life and our our life together have our tiny town wonderful police officers showed up at our house? Because we have not registered our dogs. Fuck, you know, with,
4: you know with the oh, shit, you go what the calendar is? May. So you got to go register the
7: dog. I didn't register buddy. Oh,
4: shit. Uh, All right, we better end this podcast so we If we were in that
3: diversion program, we would be faking 15 right. years in prison right yeah. now. All right, oh, we cool. should probably end it on that note before we do. Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week?
5: <laughs> uh, we have a dog of the week this yes, week. Yes, my favorite animal. And this one is in honor of Kevin. Yeah. From our listener, Stephanie McCoyle. Well wishes for our favorite podcaster, Kevin Flynn. Her corgi, also named Kevin. Yes, he (laughs) is. is Sending you healing thoughts. And I love corgis. Um, Fireman Ken won't let me get one, but I think corgis are the cutest little dogs. So I love
3: kevin the corgi i believe i cc'd that corgi to you lara bricker i'm very glad you chose corgi kevin as dog of the week this week all right lara bricker if people want to reach out to you on twitter and submit to you their cats dogs iguanas other pets chinchillas etc to be cat of the week in this podcast how can they find you at lara bricker and toy ball folks want to reach out to you and console you or perhaps get the tips about how they can get over the booting situation on their own cars, how can they find you online?
6: At NH.
3: And Kevin Flynn, if people want to reach out to you and call bullshit on you returning those audiobooks hmm. that almost kept us from being able to buy a house, how can they find you on Twitter?
4: Uh, you can tweet to me about your most favorite problematic episodes of The White Shadow, at Kevin P. Flynn. <laughs>
3: And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at RebLavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CrimeWritersOn. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official CrimeWritersOn Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular little Facebook page, by the way. Support the show on slash partners in crime media, and you will get more stuff than any other podcast is giving you on Patreon. The Crime Writers on After Show, our awesome spin off, Mary with Podcast, our other awesome spin off, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and our other awesome spin off, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast our theme song was performed by the new york sky jazz ensemble and used with their permission this show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in bay st louis mississippi studio otherwise known as studio c the closet in our basement where we'd hide our gun if we had a gun on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later later
6: i then had a latte
3: cool what kind of latte toby
6: what kind of latte? I just yeah, a like do you
5: latte. get? Like, you don't be like, oh, I want this kind of milk, and I want oh God, this no. and that, and
3: all that nonsense. Fuck that shit. It's Toby Ball. He's a straight shooter. He's like, just pour some gasoline in a cup, call it a latte, <laughs> That's right. I'll drink it. <laughs> <laughs>